You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both senior writers in MMA for The Athletic, and we meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, a very 90s episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast this week. I'm pretty excited about it, Chad. Well, the day was November the 12th, 1993, down there at the McNichols Sports Arena, the granddaddy of them all in Denver, Colorado. As they said on the broadcast, eight street-tough warriors prepared to wage battle in fights where anything could and probably would happen. Ben, UFC won. Some of the deadliest human beings in the world, I'm led to believe, gathered here in the McNichols Arena for this. You know, you'd think that that would actually be kind of a liability to get so many deadly street-tough warriors all in one place. And yet they pulled it off. I'm impressed. I mean, you got a lot of disciplines represented here. You got savat, you got sumo, you got kickboxing, you got American Kempo, you got Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you got boxing, you got shoot fighting, and you got Taekwondo here in the eight-man bracket of UFC 1. You know, uh, I got to say, I'm watching UFC 1. I got some concerns about the broadcast. I'm just going to put it out there. And... I'm just going to – let's lay it out like it is. Bill Superfoot Wallace sucks at this, Chad. He absolutely sucks. You know what I noticed early on in this this watch was that you're dealing with a five-person broadcast team here at UFC 1. You got uh, Superfoot Wallace, as you mentioned, doing your your play-by-play essentially. And I do mean essentially. Uh, you got Jim Brown, you got Kathy Long, you got Rod Machado, and then of course you got uh, Brian Kilmeade providing post-fight interviews and stuff inside the cage. So it was almost is, like uh, see as introduced by Bill Wallace, Brian Kilgore. Yeah, one uh, of the many names that Bill Wallace fucks up. In addition to the name of the organization itself. Yeah, it's uh, it's almost like producers of this, this thing looked. And they were like, we got how many live hours of sports to kill here? We, we're going to need to have as many broadcasters as possible on this thing. And they went out and they got you damn near a half dozen. And yet, Bill Superfoot Wallace almost lets nobody else talk except for himself. Even when he's going to throw it over to somebody else to ask them a question, whether it's going to make a tortured football analogy for Jim Brown or ask Kathy Long about her own fight experience, he's not going to let him get more than three or four words out before he steps all over him. I just wrote down in my notes here uh, the various names that he calls Tila Tuli. Okay, yeah. Heading into his fight with Gerard Gordu, the first fight at UFC 1. He calls him Taylor Tuli. He calls him Tyler Tuli. He calls him Talia Tuli. He calls him Taylor Tuli. He calls him Taylor Tuli. And then when he kicks it up to the ring announcer, Rich Gogo Goins, he calls him Ron Goins. <laughs> now, I, I want to say something there about Rich Goins because – when he is doing his ring announcing work, and by the way, wearing wearing a fine suit there, I think we can all agree it'd been 1993 and all. And yet, when he introduces your boy Taylor Tooley, takes a cheap shot at the man's weight. 
Hawaii rests a little higher in the Pacific tonight because Taylor Tooley isn't there, basically. He's here in Denver, Colorado. Why you got to do him like that? What's that about? I mean, I don't know. Do you think Rich Goins is coming up with his own uh, material there? Or do you think he's freelancing? Or do you think that was uh, that was canned introductory stuff that you get from the UFC? I just feel like maybe the introduction, when you're reeling off stats and saying, this guy's in the blue corner, this guy's in the red corner, it's not the time for your, your freestyle comedy bit, man. Like, that's not that's not what we're doing here. Just tell us who they are, where they come from, try to get their names right, get the stats right, and then let's move on. Yeah, if you fast forward through nearly 30 years of MMA competition to the present day, obviously what you see all the way through, Ben, are uh, the ring announcers playing it very straight. There's no there's no nonsense whatsoever in the MMA ring announcer, uh, whether it be Rich Goins or, or Bruce Buffer or uh, the lady from Pride. The lady from Pride. Len Hart? Yeah, Lenny Hart. Lene Hart, whatever her name is. Yeah. I'm just saying, maybe uh, maybe Rich Go-Go Goins, uh, he set the mold for others to follow. Well, that's unfortunate, but that's possible. Well, before we move on, we got to remind you guys about the co-main event podcast, Patreon. We had a bit of a break last week because Ben has been uh, dealing with some internet outages over at his house. Pretty much the worst timing for that as we are all uh, social distancing at the moment. But we're going to keep that co-main event podcast patreon content rolling for you guys this week we will probably do a a not so live chat on wednesday and then of course uh, we've got the movie slash book club coming up on wednesday as well for true grit both the movie uh directed uh that's a coen brothers joint right it is a coen brothers joint directed by the coen brothers and written by charles portis the the book that that is based on so it's going to be the first ever co-main event podcast movie slash book club. And then of course, Friday we'll have the power hour back in action last week. You know, Ben, we had planned to watch a bunch of Fedor fights, all of the Fedor new year's Eve fights. We were going to watch our way through those on the power hour. Couldn't happen because your internet is out. I hope that, uh, I hope that we can make that dream a reality this Friday on the power hour. So do I mostly because I also just hope that my internet will come back on. Yeah. Yeah, that's got to be uh, that's got to be rough considering the situation that we're all in at the moment. It ain't great, Chad. It ain't great. Don't forget, you can also run out and get CME logo T-shirts or Cowboy Astronaut Cigarettes T-shirts or Dundasso T-shirts all the time on demand whenever you want them over at CottonBureau.com. Just go over to CottonBureau.com and drape those old bones in some CME merchandise. We got three rounds this week. As usual in the co-main event podcast, in round number one, Hoist Gracie, great fighter or greatest fighter? And in round number two, where does UFC 1 runner-up Gerard Gordu go from here? And in round number three, looking ahead to UFC 2, how can they possibly top this? Are we going to do Are You Fucking Kidding Me and just saying stuff or no? Yes, we are. All right, all that plus are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff. But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from our old friend, the Cheeseburger Walrus. He writes, hey, guys, where do you think Tila Tooley's tooth is right now? Also, did Tooley get totally screwed by an early stoppage in his fight against Gerard Gordu? I can't help but wonder if this ultimate fighting challenge may want to implement at least some rules to avoid future uncertainty like this. Please do some totally rad discourse. Yeah, I think we can both agree. A lot of confusion 
in the moments after the referee stepped in there between Gerard Gordeau and Tila Tuli. Because up to this point, I mean, this is the very first match, and we've heard an awful lot about how there are going to be no rules. It's just street-tough, deadly, lethal warriors going at it. Even though there are no rules, we're going to still bring the guys together to talk in the center of the cage, which is a little weird because it's unclear what we're even talking about. But then we go out there, guy gets kicked in the face and then whacked upside the head, and right away we're stopping it and taking a long time to look at his missing tooth and the cut over his eye, and it seems like nobody knows what's supposed to happen next. Yeah, the first fight in UFC history runs a grand total of 26 seconds, and it's almost like they were setting you up for what was to come over the next several decades because – you know, you get Tila Tuli walking out to the cage in his Samoan robe, and then you get Gerard Gordou, who I assume just stomped out his smoke uh, on the floor of the McNichols Arena right before he was supposed to walk down the aisle to the cage. He's coming out there in some savat pants that looked like maybe they were at one time white, but have sort of matured into sort of a uh, like a gray yellow, yellowish gray color for him to go out there and fight Tila Tuli. And you are absolutely correct. Ben, that it seemed like, despite the fact that we assume they had a lot of time to set this up, nobody had even talked about how the fights would end or, you know, what would happen at the point where uh, where someone gets hurt or, uh, or you know, a, a near knockout blow is landed. Shout out, by the way, to Jerome Alberto Bejeto, your referee in the first fight at UFC, uh, UFC 1. Uh I mean, I this think we can uh, – I think maybe, you know, maybe Tila Tuli wasn't going to get up from having his teeth kicked out his mouth. Maybe he was already done. And the moment – George Gordeau did lace him with a pretty good kick right full on in the face as he's sitting down. I mean, Gordeau you didn't tell rush this it. Was not, you could tell this was not the first time Gerard Gordeau had kicked a, a, a kneeling man straight in his face. Right. That's right. He didn't rush it. He took his time just – nice form, nice follow through all the way, kicked the guy right in his mouth. But could Tila Tuli have gotten up and taken it to Gerard Gordeau? I guess we'll never know. Well, I mean, you watch this this thing today and you can tell Tila Tuli is, he's knocked out there for a second because he goes face first into the into the chain link of the, uh, the gray padded octagon that we're using at UFC 1, uh, you know, in kind of a flash knockout situation. I think he wakes up immediately thereafter, but like that, you know, when you got a six foot five, 216 pound savat master kicking you right in the face, like that's, that's going to set you back. You're going to have to take a moment to collect yourself. You know what though? Look at the build on Tila Tuli, your guy, Taylor Tuli over there. If anybody can take a kick to the mouth, get up, shake it off, and then keep bringing the fight to this tall Dutch bastard. I believe it's this guy. And we're robbed of the opportunity of finding out. And that's, I feel like that's a, that's a hurt that's going to last. I can tell that you haven't got over it even now. Can we run it back? Is it too late to run it back? Let's do it again. Let's do it again, brother. Yeah. Next question this week comes to us from Tracy Dickinson, who writes, what does it mean to be the, quote, number one ranked shoot fighter in Japan? And does the future look bright for Ken Wayne Shamrock? First of all, I love that we're calling him Ken Wayne Shamrock like he's a damn serial killer or presidential assassin. I love I mean, everything he, about that. He definitely plays the part here at UFC he one, does. right? He does out there in what Bill Wallace refers to as his swim trunks. So that's, that's fun. Uh, 
Ken Shamrock looks good getting off the bus. Let's sure say that. Does. He's coming out there in his pancrase jacket and his red Speedo with a towel folded around his neck. This looks like a guy who means business. Absolutely. And I got to say, if you're just sizing up competitors here, looking at their backgrounds, their physiques, trying to look at their face on the walk to the cage and see how ready they are, you got to make Ken Wayne Shamrock uh, one of your favorites coming into this tournament, don't you? I absolutely agree. And I think one of the uh, one of the biggest questions here surrounding UFC 1 is, is exactly what Ken Shamrock's role was in this tournament because – you know, we've talked about on the podcast before uh, the the circumstances around organizing these early UFCs. You know, the, the you know the fight the fights were real. The tournament was clearly not rigged. But at the same time, uh, Horion Gracie is your fight director. The Gracies are basically putting together these tournaments as advertisements for their family's jujitsu style. Uh, you know, I don't think it's an accident that Hoist Gracie goes out there against Art Jimerson in the first round of this thing. It seems to me like, you know, they invited a bunch of people that I think would put on good fights, but I think you can make the case that they probably also invited people that they thought Hoist Gracie could beat. And so you got Ken Shamrock out there looking looking good, getting off the bus, looking like he knows where they keep the weights in the gym. But at the same time, uh, didn't they bill him in during his introductions as being something like 26 and 3 and, and like the, you know, obviously, as Tracy Dickinson mentions here, the number one ranked shoot fighter in Japan? whatever that means. It's interesting. You go to Ken Shamrock's Wikipedia page and they have him at three and O in MMA fighting prior to his UFC one fight against Pat Smith, Patrick Smith, uh, which was his first fight. Um, all, all of which took place over the, the previous couple of months there in 1993. I also noticed that he had a fight in Pancrase looks like four days before the, uh, the UFC one tournament. So uh, you could say maybe that Ken Shamrock was was brought in to look good getting off the bus, but everyone was pretty com- comfortable and confident that Hoist Gracie was going to be able to take care of him. Well, that's interesting because Ken Shamrock was not allowed to wear his shoes. And Ken Shamrock, to this day, may even maintain that it could have been a whole different situation if he was allowed to wear his shoes, Jed. That's interesting because Art Jimerson was allowed to wear his shoes. Exactly. Exactly what I was going to say next. Art Jimerson's out there in his shoes and one glove, even though everybody else is talking about how they couldn't even wrap their hands, which might have been useful for a guy like Gerard Gordeaux who ended up with uh, a hand that was rapidly turning into a balloon in front of our very eyes. Swelling up pretty bad there. Uh, Let's talk for a second about Ken Shamrock versus Pat Smith, this uh, first round fight which really gives us our introduction to these two guys, the shoot fighter, Ken Shamrock, and the Taekwondo master, Patrick Smith. Uh, you know, one thing I love here is Ken Shamrock doing lat pull downs in his, uh, in his pre-fight interview. They, they go ahead to, to get a few words from Ken Shamrock, and it's like they, they just happened upon him at the gym while he was, he was doing his pull downs. Uh, this is a, this is a decent little fight though. Ken, Ken throws Pat Smith early, gets, Smith at least tries to get some manner of a guard going there, starts landing some heel strikes to the to the kidney area of uh, Ken Shamrock. And then you see, uh, you know, shades of the future. Ken Shamrock bites down on that leg lock like like it's going out of style and then goes ahead and gets the tap out. But you had two legitimately tough, motivated guys who were going to become fixtures in these early events in Ken Shamrock and Pat Smith here meeting in the final uh, quarterfinal fight at UFC one. Yeah. And you know, 
I think you see uh, Ken Shamrock kind of immediately go for that heel hook as soon as he gets into a position where he feels like he can isolate one of the legs and the, and the guard is open. And even from there, though, the the heel hook, heel hook game, the leg lock game, it's still a work in progress at this point in the development of MMA because it takes him a while to even get the two-on-one situation that he wants to get with that heel hook. But then once he does get it and he's wrenching on the thing and it seems to come as a pretty big surprise to Pat Smith what the actual pain of a heel hook feels like and where you feel it. And yet nobody on the broadcast team seems capable of understanding what has actually happened. I believe the diagnosis were originally given is that he's either dealing with a lot of ankle pain, which is not where the heel hook gets you usually. It's really like the knee ligament that you really feel it in. Or it is put forth as a possibility, a Charlie horse. They believe that maybe that man tapped out due to a Charlie horse inflicted by Ken Wayne Shamrock's heel hook. (laughs) Uh, Well, I mean, one of the things that I think we can take away from UFC 1 is that nobody did enough prep, right? (laughs) True. Very true. Uh, No, go ahead. See, the, the thing that I came away from that fight thinking, though, is, all right, Ken Shamrock goes in there, gets his heel hook on, uh, looks like he has not suffered a ton of damage. He's got the, a bunch of guys in Pancrase jackets all in his corner making sure we get that Pancrase logo on TV as much as we possibly can. Uh, but you notice the, the people who maybe weren't so involved in the organization of this tournament, they have to stick around afterwards and do these stand-up cage-side interviews with Brian Kilmeade, whereas when uh, – Hoist Gracie wins a fight, they hustle his ass out of the cage immediately and get to the back and get their preparation time in before the next fight. Yeah. Uh, I, we will probably you know, talk about the particulars of Gracie versus Shamrock coming up in round number one, but I do, to that end, want to point out that in Ken Shamrock's post-fight interview with Brian Kilmeade after the Hoist Gracie fight, Shamrock makes a point of saying, and I quote, I'm not used to this kind of stuff. And then he asks him, have you ever fought a jujitsu guy before? And Ken Shamrock says, no, this is my first time. So I don't know how much uh, experience we can really chalk up here into those whatever 25 fights that they claimed Ken Shamrock had had leading up to UFC 1. Seems like there was a lot of just saying stuff going on. Hashtag just saying stuff. Next question this week comes to us from Jurgen Klopp, who writes, guys, Kevin Rozier versus Zane Frazier is clearly the fight of the night here. I demand a clinical breakdown of this epic encounter. Ben, you know what I was reminded of watching uh, Kevin Rozier versus Zane Frazier, the kickboxer going up against the American Kempo stylist here in the quarterfinals? What's that, Chad? I was reminded that in these early UFCs, you can make four minutes and 20 seconds feel like a goddamn eternity. (laughs) Yes, you can. Because it seemed like these guys were out there for like a half hour. Turns out, four minutes and 20 seconds. It also, I think, seemed to them like they were out there for a half hour. Then Kevin Rozier said afterwards that it felt like about an hour. It absolutely seemed that way. Uh, This was, though, arguably the best fight of the night. And uh, the one where you got some actual stand and bang action going on here in your early UFCs. One that didn't just immediately go to the ground and end in somebody getting uh, tapped out. uh, You had the super heavyweight kickboxer and Kevin Rozier who said that he lost 45 pounds training for this thing in uh, in three weeks. Of course, the thing that stands out most to me, Ben, is some early Dundasso here from Zane Frazier, even in a tournament where you have no rules whatsoever. You had the hair pulling, the groin shot. You had a lot of, uh, uh, of uh, you know, somewhat questionable antics here from Zane Frazier. 
you know, if you're in that first tournament when no one seems quite sure what's supposed to happen, make them tell you no. I think that's a good strategy. Go out there and find, you know, explore the limits of the rules. Find the the point at which somebody's actually going to push back on you because you're grabbing the guy by the hair and punching him in the face. You're you're kicking him in the balls, and nobody says anything. Maybe you just go with that. See how how far you can ride that one. What you're saying is that at UFC one, perhaps it was better to ask for forgiveness than ask for uh, permission. Doesn't even seem like you ever have to ask for permit for forgiveness either. Nobody, nobody's holding any grudges here. It seems they'll just let you go. Even when the referee is standing there uh, two feet away, watching people tap out, he's not going to do anything about it. So you think he's really going to be nitpicky about whether you hit him in the groin or you hit him, uh, you know, uh, six inches above that. I don't think so. I think no. you just go out there and you, you, you try to figure out what you can get away with. No, it was not even there. No attention whatsoever was, was paid to, uh, to the low blow by Zane Frazier on Kevin Rosier here. Not even, not even a moment's notice in the cage that it happened. Do you uh, think is it possible that maybe sea uh, level Zane Frazier beats Kevin Rozier here? Because maybe it seemed like fatigue was what this bout swung on. Oh yeah, Zane Frazier is out there kind of whipping that ass for a little while, and then he gets tired. And of course, the big guy Kevin Rozier uh, able able to uh, to go out and finish it. I believe he finishes it with a stomp. Does he not? Uh, well, yeah, he, by that point, I mean, Zane Frazier has turned into a pile of dirty laundry on the, yes. on the floor of the cage. And then, you know, Kevin Rozier kind of take his time and figure out what he wants to do from there. And instead he kind of leans up with his hands on the cage and then just kind of stomps like he's trying to punch his boot through some melting ice. Uh, on the under driveway and until yeah. finally we get the towel thrown in. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Terry Bolea. He okay. writes, well, let me tell you something, brothers, former top ranked cruiserweight boxer, Art Jimerson went out there with the intent of letting his one glove boxing style run wild over Hoist Gracie. Didn't work. Why he do that. I think in retrospect, Art Jimerson might do things th- some things differently. You can almost see what he's thinking, right? Like, I'm going to need one hand free to grab and, and whatnot. But then I'm used to punching people with the glove. I don't want to break my hand. That's that's my whole livelihood here. So I'm going to want that one covered up and uh, protected so that I can really put a hurting on people. I'm sure, like, if you just talk to yourself about it and you don't have maybe a whole lot of people to throw that idea off of, Maybe it ends up coming out thinking like, okay, yeah, no, this is the most sensible plan I've ever come up with. Yeah. You know, uh, Art Jimerson obviously catches years and years worth of flack for going out there and wearing the one boxing glove at UFC 1. It's sort of like one of the things that comes to mind first when people think about this event. But you you go back and you watch it today, and if they're not going to let you wrap your hands and your – only chance of victory is to to throw down with with heavy punches. I don't actually think that it's that crazy to wear the boxing glove. Like it looks cartoonish. It ends up not working out, and then you get lambasted on the internet for years. But like, I don't know. I, I agree with you. I think you can like almost see what the guy is going for with the one glove. And yet, once you get down there and you got Hoist Gracie mounted on you, it seems like maybe trying to do whatever he thought he was trying to do, hold on, is a little bit harder when you got one hand and one glove. And then he just kind of has himself a little bit of a freak out. 
Yeah. Well, and that leads me to my question, Ben. Is Art Jimerson the least emotionally invested of anyone in this tournament? Because <laughs> it seems like he was like, all right, I can try to do this one thing. And then like if I get taken down and I wind up on the ground with the jujitsu guy, I'm just going to just get to immediately tap out before anything can really happen. Well, I mean, maybe if you just have no idea what what this guy might even bring to the table. For one thing, you get in there in the cage with Hoist Gracie, you got to be a little bit disconcerted that he seems to be the only one who has a sizable cheering section from what we can hear. Yeah, everybody's, big million contingent there at McNichols Arena. Yeah, everybody's there in Denver. Uh, the storied Denver Brazilian population turning out for Hoist Gracie on this night. Yeah, I don't know. Was was Somebody was actually from Colorado here on this card, right? Like, yeah, you know, Patrick Smith is Pat a hometown is, guy. Yeah, and so you get a little bit of a hometown pop for him, but you get even more people cheering for Royce Gracie. That's where if you're Art Jimerson, you might be going, wait a minute. So his family is all here. One of them is wearing a goddamn tuxedo at cage side, seemingly involved with regulatory decisions here. The guy has a cheering section. You don't even know maybe what Gracie Jiu-Jitsu is about. You get down there in the mount, and that guy's on top of you. You can't do anything about it. Are you thinking like, okay, I'm – 30 seconds from having him rip my throat out roadhouse style. Maybe, <laughs> maybe I want to, before it gets to that point, just reach over here, tap out, take my money and go home. Yeah. I mean, you could say maybe that was the, uh, maybe that was how, how it went mentally for King Arthur, Art Jimerson. This also his only ever mixed martial arts fight. Uh, so he takes this one, has the one glove on, gets tapped out. Well, doesn't even get tapped out. He taps out at two minutes and 18 seconds just from being mounted by Hoist Gracie. And then uh, he never comes back. So this is a, I guess, if anything, maybe a failed experiment on the part of R. Jimerson. You know, if you don't try, you'll never know. So I respect that. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I agree with you. That's going to do it for listener mail this week. You have questions, comments, concerns that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks. You know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and you click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. Hmm. I wonder what would be a good idea for the people to send us questions about for next week. Uh, Perhaps... The 16-man tournament coming up on March 11th, 1994 at the Mammoth Gardens in Denver, Colorado, a.k.a. UFC 2, No Way Out. You crazy son of a bitch. I'm just saying. I'm just saying that's out there for the taking. Uh, As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, three fairly quick and easy victories for Hoist Gracie at UFC 1, defeating Gerard Gordu, Ken Shamrock, and eventually, uh, or I'm sorry, he defeats uh, Art Jimerson, Ken Shamrock, and then Gerard Gordu in the finals. Uh, no bout lasting longer than two minutes. So he, he goes and hangs the banner there for the Gracie family, probably just uh, just like it was planned all along. And I will also say, comes out to stand politely while we're going to give a plaque to uh, Helio Gracie right before the finals of this thing. So didn't necessarily look like Hoist Gracie was sweating the competition all that bad. 
Well, clearly what we're dealing with in Hoist Gracie is just an elite athlete. Yeah, 176 pounds of elite athlete. You see him, you see him come out there with the shaggy hair and the, you know, deceptively slight build, uh, the, the judo top as Bill Wallace will refer to it over and over and over again. again, And, And, uh, yeah, you, you see that here's just a physical specimen who you can't possibly defeat. Nothing else to it. Well, as the story goes, Ben, didn't the Gracies choose Hoist Gracie for this thing because of his uh, his unassuming appearance and demeanor? Like they they definitely chose not to have Hickson rec- represent the family at UFC One, despite the fact that I think he was uh, widely recognized as the the best Gracie Jiu Jitsu stylist at that point. But the the story that I had always heard was that they thought Hickson was too imposing, that he was kind of too big and too muscly, that they wanted the people watching at home to see skinny little Hoist Gracie in his white pajamas go out there and, and you know, defeat all these combat specialists and interest the people in Gracie Jiu-Jitsu in the process. And it absolutely works, too, because you, you see Hoist beating these people and you think, like, OK, he must know something. He's not just going out there and succeeding on raw physical ability. He actually had, and you also, it helps, I guess you got Rob Machado down and the broadcast team to say over and over again, that is the power of Gracie jujitsu and stuff like that. Uh, and seems to be the only person who has any kind of idea what is happening once the fight gets to the mat. But uh, yeah, I mean, Hickson was there, a bunch of the Gracies are there that are probably a bit more physically impressive, but you have Hoyce out there beating people, uh, locking up these chokes and whatnot. I'm also struck by when I'm watching Hoist Gracie go for some of these takedowns, I think, you know, if if somebody had known even just a little bit of defensive wrestling, maybe this whole thing turns out differently. Yeah, it didn't seem like anybody really did. And, and I was kind of surprised uh, on the UFC one broadcast, the extent to which they were they would willingly admit like the other people in this tournament were not ready for the ground, like that they were not ready for the takedowns, you know, like uh, uh, they kept saying over and over again, if you don't know what you're doing on the ground, like it's no contest that Gracie Jiu-Jitsu is going to finish this thing, uh, which is an interesting sales pitch in a way, just like uh, admitting to your audience that only one of the guys here was was ready for this kind of combat. But I think that you're right, like especially, you know, he goes out there and catches that double leg takedown or as it's referred to on the on the broadcast, the clinch takedown on Art Jimerson in the first fight. And like clearly you see uh, a lack of preparation from the opponents and also Hoist Gracie's strategy uh, to go out there, take people down and finish these fights as quickly as possible. As I said, he, he emerges from this tournament having not fought, uh, you know, uh, a very lengthy fight in any of these, in any of these bouts. So like definitely he was the guy who, was prepared to do this when almost nobody else was. Yeah. Uh, I also think though, that there are moments there where you see Hoist Gracie, let's say doing a very 90s style jujitsu. The game okay. has, has not seen a whole lot of evolutions. It seems by the time we're getting everybody in the cage for the first UFC, it's pretty simple stuff. You know, we're not nothing too fancy out there. We're just, advancing position, getting to a point, waiting for somebody to turn their back, maybe throw a headbutt or two to, to loosen them up and on the ground. And then we're locking up those chokes and that's pretty much all there is to it. Yeah, definitely not, uh, you know, any real high level or unexpected moves here for those of us who have seen the rest of the, of the MMA evolutionary arc. 
Uh, let, let's do talk, though, about Gracie Shamrock, because that's the one halfway decent scrap that Hoist Gracie gets into in this in this uh, in this tournament. 57 seconds long is all it is. But at the same time, like Shamrock is as prepared for a takedown attempt, I think, here as anybody in this tournament. He goes ahead and it looks like he stuffs the initial takedown attempt by Hoist Gracie, uh, tries to roll him over, but then gets gets reversed and gets lets uh, Gracie get on top of him. And at that point, uh he, uh, you know, the the end kind of comes somewhat quickly there. But uh, at the same time, like you kind of see flashes of what is to come here from Ken Shamrock. And you kind of see, as you said, how things might have been different if you had some different preparation or some different athletes out there for this tournament. Well, I think Ken Shamrock, the, the big mistake he makes is in dropping back for that leg. And he gives up the position there. If, if Ken Shamrock is able to stay on top of Hoist Gracie and force Hoist to work his bottom jujitsu game, I don't know how well Hoist is going to deal with that at that precise time in his own fighting evolution. Because I think the, the critical error there, because you're right, Ken Shamrock totally stuffs it and he gets on top and he's the bigger, stronger guy. And you think that he's probably at least familiar enough with submissions that he's going to be able to fight off stuff like triangle chokes and arm bars from the bottom, which is, probably what you're looking at but when he falls back there looking for that leg that's when he allows gracie up and then from there in the scramble is still looking for that leg and leaves his neck open yeah uh he definitely he admits freely after the fight that he was paying too much attention to the neck and not or too much attention to trying to get the leg and not enough attention to protecting his own neck so the end does come a few seconds uh prior to the minute mark there uh for for ken shamrock uh, I don't know, man. This is uh, this is also another example of uh, you know maybe a lack of preparation all the way around because there's some confusion here at the end of this fight around Ken Shamrock tapping out that uh, you know he taps out. Hoist has got him in the uh, got him in a rear naked choke. Taps out again. The referee, who you would think would be at least somewhat familiar with Gracie jiu-jitsu and how these fights were going to end doesn't seem to make a move after Shamrock taps out pretty pretty ardently there taps three or four times on the mat hoist lets go of him and then like there's some question about what we're going to do here and of course ever the good guy Ken Shamrock knows in his own words it wouldn't be fair it wouldn't be fair to carry on here given that hoist Gracie's already let go of the hold what a goddamn sportsman am I right yeah, like he's, you know, he's there not to dishonor anyone. You know, he just wants a, some good, clean action here in the UFC 1 tournament. Well, you know, I don't understand how the referee doesn't see that, even if you're not totally knowledgeable about jujitsu and what's to come. How do you not see that tap? You're standing right there. Uh, you There's nothing blocking your view at that point. The guy reaches right out and taps the mat and no real reaction from the referee. I mean, what, what were you? What are you doing there? As the referee, if you if you're not ready for the tap, I mean, we don't have any like TKO stoppages or anything. So what? So what are you doing? Yeah, I don't. You see why they went out and got Big John McCarthy here shortly after these these first couple of events that you needed a guy in the cage who was gonna you know know his way around in there. Well, what John McCarthy told me uh, years later was that what actually what got him the job more than the guy missing the tap was the guy stepping in and stopping that first fight with Gerard Goudreau and uh, your guy, Taylor Tooley, because that was absolutely, you're not supposed to stop it. You're basically let, supposed to let somebody beat on the other guy until he's either 
visibly unconscious or somebody throws the towel or, or something. And so that was the mistake that caused him. Not so much missing, it seemed, you know, an obvious tap from Ken, Ken Wayne Shamrock. Well, he missed all the obvious taps in, in this entire event, not just in this fight. Uh, how about the finals here? By the time Hoist Gracie gets around to uh, Gerard Gordu in the finals, Gordu, Gordu is is pretty compromised. I think he has that broken hand. Of course, he had uh, Tila Tuli and Kevin Rozier previous to this. Uh, and uh, Gracie is able to make relatively short work of the guy and and win the, the 50 Gs, the much ballyhooed 50 Gs here as the prize at, at UFC one again, you know, a legitimately tough guy in Gerard Gordu, who we will talk about in a little bit more detail coming up here in round number two, but at the same time, Hoist Gracie, again, just kind of like a, a world beyond him in terms of how this fight was going to go and the skills that were going to be needed. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that uh, when it comes time to finally get us in the finals here. Hoist Gracie versus Gerard Gurdu. I think a lot of people were thinking about, hey, Ken Shamrock and Hoist Gracie looked like maybe that would end up be a pretty solid final. But Gerard Gurdu, has, at, up to the point that he ends up there in Ho- with Hoist Gracie in the finals, has looked like a pretty scary dude. So that was a, kind of an ideal final situation for them, was it not? Yeah, yeah. And definitely a dude who, uh, who obviously knew his way around some combat. Like that becomes clear, as we said, very early on. Gerard Gurdu not going to hesitate to uh, kick you right in your face. One of the things you got to like about the guy. And also it looks like he's mainly uh, concerned with finishing up this fight so that he can get back to his locker room and open a bottle of wine and have a cigarette. Yeah. Uh, all right. Let's do uh, Are You Fucking Kidding Me? And then we'll move on to round number two. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me here regarding UFC 1? Well, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me has to do with Jean Goudou, actually, because when your guy comes out there, first of all, you know, he, he has this very quick fight with Taylor Tooley in the first round. Uh, and then he comes out there to fight Kevin Rozier to in the semifinals. Now, the broadcast team mentions it looks like Gardu's right hand might be broken. And during the introductions, we have the cameraman just zooming right in, just standing there and looking right at this rapidly swelling right hand, which if I'm Gerard Gardu, maybe I wish you wouldn't tip off my opponent in that way. Because he's standing right over there, man. He can see you pointing the camera at my hand. If he's putting two and two together, he might very well realize, like, hey, why aren't they pointing the camera at this guy's face during the introductions? Oh, maybe it's because there's something wrong with his right hand, something that I could really use to my advantage here. Are you fucking kidding me? We're going to give the guy's game a whole way while he's standing right there in the cage getting ready for the semifinals? You fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. I mean... I, I don't know that the anything involving the UFC one production was all that uh, calculated, but I, I take your point. It's bullshit. It's a bullshit move. Man, this week, my are you fucking kidding me goes out to quote all the so-called kickboxing organizations out there that aren't going to give Kevin Rozier his due in fighting the super heavyweight champions of all of these wannabe striking organizations. Man, give my man Kevin Rozier a chance. The guy is clearly the unheralded star of UFC one with his gifted gab and his good attitude about the whole thing. And his, uh, his corner man that keeps trying to shout answers for him during his post fight interview. Come on, <laughs> kickboxing organizations. Give let Kevin Rosier fight for your title. What are you scared? Are you fucking kidding me? It is a little telling that the first thing Kevin Rosier wants to say once he gets out of his semifinal run in the UFC one is I want a regular fight. I want a normal fight next. Yeah. Yeah, but then he's like, hey, man, I'll keep coming back here as long as they'll have me. 
Kevin Rozier, just down for whatever. I admire it. I like it. I like the attitude. Also claims that he lost like 45 pounds in three or four weeks. So I'd like to know more about that Kevin Rozier diet and exercise plan. Yeah, no, he was, uh, I think it's the just winging it plan because it seems like mostly he was just winging it out there. Nice. All right, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, to start round number two, I'm just going to throw out a little bit of a, of a hypothetical here. I'm just going to throw it your way. You digest it. See what you think. Send it on back. Are you ready? I'm ready. Ready as I'll ever be. Gerard Gourdieu, with three months of grappling training, beats the living shit out of Hoist Gracie. You know, I don't think it's all that crazy to postulate that. As we talked about earlier in the show, if there's one guy, Ben, in this entire UFC one tournament who kind of gets MMA, who seems like a natural MMA dude, it's probably Gerard Gordeau because he clearly does not give a fuck about anything and is going to go out there, kick you in your face, kick you in your leg, kick you wherever he can kick you, punch. He's, he's out there punching motherfuckers with his broken hand. Ben. Yeah, he absolutely he, he threw that thing, that, that swollen right hand. He was throwing it at Kevin Rozier's head like he did not care. And, you know, three months doesn't sound like a lot of time, but I think that if all you have to do is keep Hoist Gracie from getting you to the ground, you probably win. Uh, I don't think it's crazy to uh, to to think that, like, maybe Gerard Gordu wins wins this this tournament if he had a little bit more experience. And I will counter your question with another question. How would the landscape of mixed martial arts be different if Gerard Gordeau had won UFC 1? Oh, that is a beautiful world to imagine, isn't it? I mean, would we even be here right now? Would we have just shut the whole thing down and uh, called it a failed experiment to, uh, to try to advertise Gracie Jiu-Jitsu? Or would we all be – would millions of kids out there worldwide be doing Savat right now? Yeah. Does a, does a 19-year-old Ben Folks walk into a Savat gym instead where a bunch of guys are standing around in their undershirts smoking cigarettes between rounds? Because <laughs> things could have turned out very differently for your boy. Maybe my neck could still be in better condition. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm probably not your hand, but maybe your neck. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I don't know what we would have done. T- I mean, I think that uh, maybe it just would not have seemed to promote any one style if the six foot five inch Dutch kickboxer with a heart of ice goes out there and beats up on the skinny Brazilian guy in the finals. I think maybe people would have looked at it and been like, okay, well, you know, that guy did look scarier and was bigger. So maybe it makes sense that he beat that dude. I still think, man, I think you give me Gerard Gordu. I'm going to take him to the Ohio State wrestling room. We're going to, you know, first of all, just teach him what an underhook is just because he gets in that clinch. Hoist Gracie has to struggle to take him down in that clinch. And, and that's Hoist Gracie struggling despite having both underhooks the entire time. Or George Gordu does not even know enough to try to fight for one of them. Just a few small tweaks here or there. I think you get Hoist Gracie off, you stop that first takedown, you get him to panic a little bit, then you start just kicking the hell out of his thighs, and maybe this the the whole world turns upside down. Yeah, yeah, just keep him away from you, really. Like I, I don't even know if it would uh, if it would take a protracted like clinch or takedown 
defense. Like you just got to keep a little space and you might, you know, you might've walloped him in the legs a couple of times because, you know, one of the things that I can say positively for Gerard Gordou's skill set here at UFC one in that uh, semifinal match against Kevin Rozier, when he's kicking those legs, he is kicking those legs hard. He's kicking, he's, he's basically doing, uh, 2020 quality MMA low kicks right there on Kevin Rozier back, back before, uh, you know, well, obviously way before anybody had even popularized that technique. He's, he kicked his legs, uh, like it was going out of style. Yeah. You know what? And I think that maybe the future version of MMA that I want to see is one where Gerard Gordeau becomes the elder statesman running his own Sabat gym, churning out future champions because, you know, You'd get him to team up with somebody who know a little something about the ground game, and uh, next thing you know, maybe we got a bunch of killer Europeans out here in gi bottoms uh, stomping on people's ribs. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah, the rib stomp on Kevin Rozier is also just remorseless. It's just pitiless. Kevin Rozier was – he was probably, of all the people in this tournament – by the time he got to the semifinals, he was the least – he was in the, 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 the worst shape to continue to fight that same night. Like that's a, an aspect of this kind of tournament that you got to take into account because even with a broken hand and a foot that at this time maybe still had a tooth in it or at least was split open by a tooth – Gerard Godot was still in better shape than Kevin Rozier was. Like you could tell not only was he exhausted and had his face split open and had to stand there and talk to Brian Kilmeade after the fight anyway, before he could go back there and rest. But he comes out there and is almost immediately just reacting to everything Godot is doing and has no kind of forward movement or attack strategy of his own. And is already just basically held together by scotch tape by that point. Yeah. I'm going to read a little bit here. Just two sentences from uh, Gerard Godot's Wikipedia page. Uh, thanks to his savat and karate skills, he held jobs as a bouncer for eight years. Due to the high criminality of the Dutch districts, he would reveal years later that he lived through constant danger of death. Uh, okay, I believe that. I'm thinking you you look at the 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 Tila Tuli stoppage and the Kevin Rozier stoppage where he kicks Tila Tuli right in his face and he stomps on Kevin Rozier's floating ribs essentially while he's already down on the mat. I'm betting there are some. Uh, some club goers, some uh, some guys who frequent the drinking establishments over in Den Haag, the Netherlands, who looked at those two strikes at UFC 1 and were like, oh, yeah, 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 that looks familiar to me. I remember when Gerard Gordou did that to me. Yeah, I don't have a hard time imagining uh, Gerard Gordou stomping somebody's head in uh, on the sidewalk outside of a club. Like he, that, that seems like something that he would be very comfortable with. We would be remiss, Ben, would we not, if we did not refer at least passingly to Gerard Gordou's appearance also in the documentary Choke. That's right. He goes out there and the, just thumbs the hell out of Yuki, Yuki Nagai's eye, right? Yeah. Valley Tudo Japan 1995, the documentary. If you haven't seen it, you should because it's real good. Uh, focuses on uh, everyone getting ready for this Valley Tudo tournament. Again, with a, uh, a real focus on Hicks and Gracie in the lead up to this thing. But uh, yeah, Gerard Gordou goes out there and I, doesn't Yuki Nakai suffer some kind of permanent eye damage? I believe those, he does. Due yeah. to that eye gouging on the, on the part of Gerard Gordou. Yeah. Some bad eye gouging. And then he, ha- he, you know, he wins. So then he has to continue and ends up fighting Hickson in the final. But by then it looks like he can't see out of either eye. 
It's a charmed life to be these Gracies. You're fighting a guy who's going to tap out from the mount, or you're fighting a guy who's already had his eyes thumbed out. But you are also meeting serial killer Ken Wayne Shamrock in the semifinals. <laughs> That's true. That's true. That is going to do it for round number two. What comes next for the UFC? That's what we are going to talk about in round number three. That starts right now. Well, Ben, I just want to get your general impressions, first of all, after having watched UFC 1 here in the year of our Lord 2020. Just just taking in what we have to offer here in the hour and a half, probably a, it's probably a condensed version of UFC 1 that we have on, uh, on the fightpass.com. Runs about 90 minutes. Definitely worth your time to go watch it, I think, if you haven't seen it. Ben, uh, or if you haven't seen it in a while. Ben, what, but what was your overall impression here and were you surprised or not surprised that this event ultimately birthed MMA, essentially? You know, we talked a little bit about how it seemed like it was only designed to birth interest in uh, jiu-jitsu schools, but the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu schools in North America, which it does a pretty effective job of doing that. You know, I come away from this tournament going, shut it down. You're gonna, you're never going to top this. This is the perfect weird one night experiment and uh, maybe we should have let it just we should have let it lie we should have let it be a beautiful flower that bloomed once and never again well i mean in some ways you never could recapture the weird and wonderful greatness of ufc one just being the uh the first the first right you always remember your first and so you're always going to look back at ufc one like it's a little bit something special you're never going to forget uh superfoot wallace burping during the first you know basically the first sentence of the pay-per-view you're never going to forget hoist crazy tapping everybody out you're never going to forget ken shamrock and his swim shorts or a uh or tila tuli getting kicked in the face you got some memorable moments here i do i do think it's surprising though that we decided to do this again uh you know not all that long later either just the march of 1994 we got together for ufc2 not only did we do it again brother but we did it even bigger because i believe ufc2 is a 16-man tournament that's right we looked at ufc1 and we thought we can go bigger we can get more guys in this thing you know uh also, we looked at UFC 1 and maybe figured Pat Smith needs to play a bigger role in UFC 2. I'll say this for Pat Smith. He generates a lot of excitement prior to the bell. You notice that? He doesn't do that bad once the fights start. You know, he's he's clearly a, uh, kind of a crazy mo- motherfucker. He's going to go out there and, uh, you know, do, do what he has to do to win. Yeah, but I think uh, when you come out of this one, I'm sure there's a whole lot of people like how many – people do you think watching this one because i remember seeing the ads for it come across pay-per-view where they're like no holds barred bare knuckled guys in a cage and even like as a kid in 1993 i remember my reaction being wait a minute is this for real is this a pro wrestling thing are they actually going to be allowed to do this because this doesn't seem like it would be possible but also that sounds rad and how many people do you think watch this Watch this guy in his pajamas out there making everybody else submit and thought, 
bullshit. I'm going to write into these people. I'm going to set up my VHS camera. I'm going to record myself and my own audition tape in my garage. And I'm going to write into these people and tell them I want to be on the next one because I can beat this guy's ass. I bet you had a lot of people out there kind of on that line of thinking after watching this. Well, Tank Abbott, right? There you go. You know Tank Abbott was out in the garage hitting the heavy bag after this thing aired. Also, I think it's worth noting the first event, according to Wikipedia, did a buy rate of 86000 which, you know, not bad. You come out of nowhere, put on one pay-per-view. The second event did a buy rate of 300000 Word of mouth. I mean, people, Word of mouth. People are like, I bring back the Savat guy. I want to see that guy again. What's up with Taylor Tooley? Has he gotten any teeth put back in his mouth? Uh, when did you, did you watch UFC one as a kid? Like what was what's your first inter- interface here with, with MMA? I watched, uh, like several of them on VHS at once. I remember I was homesick and like during high school and a friend of mine who was a big time, uh, high school wrestler and he was really into it and he kept telling me, he's like, you got to see this stuff and this guy hoist Gracie and he was super into grappling and everything. So I kind of listened to him one day and I was homesick and I was like, I rented, like three different, like UFC one, two, three, maybe. And then you get to see an awful lot of Hoist Gracie doing his thing. And that probably made a a pretty indelible impression on me that shaped the rest of my life afterwards. Because afterwards you're going like, okay, this guy clearly knows something. I want to know what this guy knows. But seeing them all back to back, I'm sure it definitely had an effect because when the first one went down, I mean, it, Again, I remember seeing the ads, but it didn't seem like anything. It, it didn't seem like it could possibly be what they were claiming it was going to be. And yet it was. Yeah. I watched UFC 2. was my first UFC event. So, you know, maybe I'm part of that. Uh, well, I didn't, didn't buy the pay-per-view, obviously, because I was a high school kid. But, uh, you know, part of that word of mouth skyrocketing from 80,000 buys to 300,000 buys. I remember a friend of mine came to school and he was like, my dad taped this thing off pay-per-view and it's the craziest shit you've ever seen. You got to come over to my house after school and watch it. And so we did. And I remember just, just like kind of having my mind blown by it, but also, you know, as a, a person who was like a fan of professional wrestling and a person who was interested in the grappling arts, just like I'm immediately seeing what dudes like Hoist Gracie were doing and, and uh, you know, gravitating toward it. So that was my first exposure. I, di- I don't remember the first time that I saw UFC one, but I would wager that it was shortly thereafter. I imagine as soon as I found out it was available on video cassette tape, I probably circled back and, uh, and checked it out, but I don't remember when that was. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you come out of this one and you see basically how the no rule and anybody against anybody kind of format plays out. Do you think if you were, in some kind of planning committee, are you saying, you know what, that couldn't have worked out any better. Let's just do the next one like that. Or at this point, are you starting to think, you know what, maybe, maybe some rules wouldn't be such a bad idea. Maybe just a little more clarity about what constitutes the ending of a fight. Yeah, I think, you know, you could, you start to see definitely some potential for organization, I guess you could say, because there is a lot of kind of like uncertainty and, and chaos involved in these fights. And I think that part of that was was some of the allure of these early UFC events. But uh, I, I think that the, you see that the sport and the events just kind of get better and better the more organized that they become as we move forward through time. And and like I would, you know, the defining characteristic of this UFC one broadcast is almost its disorganization because 
there's just so much stuff that they either didn't know what they were going to do or that like they didn't bother to explain to the audience. Because I remember just as we were watching this thing this week, I was, uh, I was watching, it was the Kevin Rozier, Zane Frazier fight is going on. And, you know, we get, this is the longest fight of the night, obviously four minutes and 20 seconds. Uh, we started to get further and further into this fight. And then they put a clock in the corner of the screen and the clock is counting down. Yeah. And I was like, what, what are we do? We have, is there a time limit here? What are we doing? And then, you know, following Kevin Rozier's loss to, uh, to Gerard Gordieu in the, in the semifinals where he's good enough there to, uh, to grace Brian Kilmeade with the post-fight interview, despite the fact that he just got his ribs stomped on, uh, Kilmeade asks him something like, were you ready to go five rounds? Yes. And, and it's like, they didn't even bother to explain that maybe what we were doing here was, was five, five minute rounds. And so Which like, it's really just a vision of the future for MMA. It did. Yeah, it certainly is. But like at the same time, like, you know, as a viewer, that would be nice to know that we're going to do five, five minute rounds here. So, you know, not only do I think like this UFC one laid bare, the idea that there is going to be some, uh, some room for organization, but like just some room for, a broadcast that lays it out for me, man. Just tell me what we're actually doing here. Tell me what we're actually doing and see if we can just get all the names right. See if we like, let's, let's talk. Let's see to if we can get one name right. Yeah. Just consistently throughout the entire broadcast. Let's just stick with one pronunciation and let's also make sure we all know what the organization is called. I mean, I don't even want to try to point out to you that, uh, when Superfist Wall, Superfoot Wallace, uh, tried to say discombobulated and I believe that he, <laughs> what he came up with was discombobo discombobo. I can't even read my own notes, but I wrote this down discombobidated or something. He didn't get it. Let's just put it that way. He did not stick it. Worth noting, you know who one of the, uh, the main uh, senseis of Bill Superfit Wallace was. Uh, Jim Harrison, Jim Ronan Harrison, the late great Jim Harrison of Missoula, Montana. See, there you go. We're finding connections all over the place. It's all connected. Let's do just saying stuff, Ben. And then we'll get out of here for this week. This week, I'm just saying, I don't think it's an accident that you get Helio Gracie out there. You're trying to have this solemn ceremony where you present him with a very wordy plaque about his uh, his accomplishments and his contributions to uh, jujitsu and the world of no holds barred fighting. The crowd is just booing its ass off while you're trying to do this. First thing Helio Gracie does, Ben, he gets on the mic. He says, I'm very happy to be here in Denver, Colorado. I'm just saying Helio Gracie, natural born pro wrestler. (laughs) Well, that's not bad. Just saying. I mean, this guy understands crowd crowd work. He understands marketing. He's going to have a bunch of sons that are all going to go out there and have a big ass uh, no holds barred tournament. This guy knows what's up. Helio Gracie knows what's up. Professional wrestler, Carney Helio Gracie. Well, Chad, I'm just saying, I think the person who got the most money for doing the least, and I say that without even knowing what he was paid, is your guy, NFL great Jim Brown. <laughs> he's there as part of the broadcast team. I don't think he says more than 15, 20 words the entire time. I mean, some of that is Bill Superfoot Wallace just talking over him no matter what even when trying to set him up with some kind of football analogy. But Jim Brown just seems to be there hanging out, wearing his Jim Brown hat, having a good time. 
and uh, not really called upon to do too much. And uh, I think maybe, you know, we could have given Jim Brown a bigger role. Also, I mean, this is the same guy who was out there. He had a role to play in uh, Running Man. And then we come out here with what looks like a kind of close to a real live version, except that we're not using convicts. And we don't, we're not even going to, nobody's going to touch on that. That's fine. I guess that's okay. Uh, but then you got on the flip side, you got this guy, Brian Kilmeade, future Fox and Friends host. I really, I just wish that maybe somebody, somebody in charge of all this broadcast media stuff could have looked at it and been like, Jim Brown can do more and Brian Kilmeade should not have a future in broadcasting in any form. I'm just saying. Wow. Just saying. Jim Brown becomes a fixture in the For UFC a little world. while. Yeah. So they definitely like what they were seeing. Well, Ben, we are, uh, we're in a weird situation here, as I'm sure everybody knows. We're in, we're in isolation. There's no sports. Even MMA has paused for the most part these weeks. So there's just not, there ain't shit going on, frankly, as we like to say on this show. And so the possibility does exist, depending on what, uh, what MMA news breaks this week, that we could watch UFC 2 for next week's show. I mean, the possibility exists, Chad, that we could work all the way back up to UFC 249 before we get this shit back up and running. <laughs> I hope that's not true. Let me just uh, let me throw some names at you, though, here. Pat Smith, Boyce okay. Gracie, okay. ninjutsu practitioner Scott Morris. Nice. Fred Eddish. Oh, sweet. Rem Cole Pardue. <laughs> all right. Uh, uh, Kung Fu guy Jason DeLucia. I mean – you got some luminaries involved in UFC too, and as I as we said earlier in the show, sixteen uh, man tournament. I mean, you knew it was only a matter of time till we get some ninjutsu motherfuckers up in there. If memory serves, ninjutsu fighter uh, Scott Morris gets his whole shit broke at UFC two. <laughs> well, see now we got to do it. Now I'm excited. All right, there we are. We'll uh, we'll let everybody know if that's going to be the plan. But watching UFC one was kind of fun, so uh, maybe we keep it going. I don't know. Maybe we do we do it again, brother. You're saying maybe we do it again, brother. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. So what have you been doing up there with no internet? You know, reading some books, staring out the window, picking up sticks in the backyard, like you do. How is this impacting your children? Uh, they are amazingly resilient. Although, having to be around them all day, I learned that uh, their favorite thing to do is make up terrible songs and sing them really loudly right by my face. You gotta get that internet back, man. Yeah, yeah. Get that internet back. You need that. <laughs>